Well, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4 as we're getting to the last chapter in this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. You know, I moved here eight and a half years ago from the south. Uh, first 28 years of my life were spent below the good old Mason-Dixon line. And, uh, you know, if you've lived that long in one region, and then especially the region of the south, and then you move to Wisconsin, you notice a few things. There's a few differences between here and there. There's a few cultural differences, a few uh, phonetic differences, uh, a few, oh, well, plenty of differences, and some interesting, some comedic. And you know, uh, my wife has grown up here, born and raised right here in Sheboygan County, has lived here her whole life. And I remember when we began dating, uh, some of those cultural differences began coming out in conversations and even in our relating to one another. When we started dating, we would go to a restaurant or movie or whatever it might have been, and I, we would be approaching the door, and she would, if she was first to the door, she would open the door and walk in, and I'm standing there going, what are you doing? And, and she was like, going inside? And I'm like, no you got to let me open the door for you. And she's like, I can open a door. I'm fully capable. And I'm like, I get it. I totally understand that you're fully capable of opening a door. I've seen you do it many times. What you don't understand is there's a value in me from where I came from that I want to open the door for you. And it's not because you're not capable. It's not because men are better than women or anything like that. It's because this is a value I grew up in, and I want to open the door for you out of respect and care for you. And she's going, okay. And that's something that over time, even still after that conversation, she would be like going to grab a door, and I'd go, <clears throat> and she'd go, oh, yeah, go ahead. And now we're to the point where when we go places and we're approaching a door, whether a restaurant or a store or whatever it might be, she has become accustomed to not getting ahead of me, walking side or behind or whatever, to where I can get to the door first to open it for her as a woman who is fully capable, knowing that that's a way that I express my love and respect and appreciation to her. That's one difference uh, that we navigated as we began developing this relationship. Another, we started planning our wedding. There's a lot of cultural differences in the way that Southern weddings happen and uh, Midwestern Wisconsin weddings happen. I remember we were planning our wedding, and uh, one day we're sitting at her mom's kitchen table, and I said, "Man, I gotta figure out, I gotta figure out what kind of groom's cake I'm gonna have." And and they looked at me like I was talking about something that they obviously had not heard of before, and their faces told me as such or told me as much, and so I went, groom's cake, I gotta, and they're looking at me like, and then say, what are you talking about? And I'm like, well, my groom's cake, I gotta figure out, you know, what I wanna have. Do I wanna have like a cowboy star groom cake, or do I wanna have like a guitar groom's cake? And they're just going, we have no idea what you're talking about, you need to tell us what you're talking about. So in the South, when you get married, at the reception, there's a table where there's a groom's cake, a cake that's about something or designed uh, relative to something that the groom is passionate about. This is common. This is normal. Up here, 
not normal. And so they're like, yeah, no, we don't do that up here. And I'm like, oh, oh, okay. I guess I won't have my groom's cake. And it was fine because the groom's cake isn't the reason that we had the day, the celebration. We wasn't the reason we had the reception. I got the prize. I got my wife. And so I could go, eh, not a big deal. Because I didn't want her to have to deal with a wedding day of people going, what is this weird table over here with this weird cake? And so I went, well, I'm somewhere else right now, so I need to be mindful of that. And that wasn't something that violated my values or anything like that. So I was going, okay, I guess I don't get what, what's normal where I came from. And as we get into this fourth chapter of Philippians, we got to remember something. We just finished chapter 3 where Paul reminds them, he says, hey, don't be like, he talks about people that are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose God is their belly, who glory in their shame, whose minds are set on the things of the earth, the things of this world. And then he goes on to say, but our citizenship is in heaven. And he uses this to call them out of, remember, this is a people who live in the Roman settlement colony of Philippi. And so the mindset and cultural perspective there, the way of life is the Roman way of life. This is a, a, a colony and a culture that is not very godly. And so one more time he's saying, listen, our citizenship is in heaven. And then as we get into Philippians chapter 4, Verse 1, he says, therefore, coming out of the, your citizenship is in heaven, okay? He says, therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. To these people who he just said, there are people who are, the who are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose God is their belly, who glory in their shame, whose minds are set on things of this earth, but our citizenship is in heaven. And he gives this little extra speech there talking about, and we're awaiting our Savior from heaven, who's going to give us new bodies like his bodies. We are, have our mindset on our heavenly citizenship. Therefore, since that is the truth, my brothers whom I love and long for, therefore, stand firm thus, meaning from that, out of that, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. We have to realize, we have to acknowledge that to faithfully follow Christ in a world that is anti-Christ, it will require us standing firm. There will be opposition. There will be voices, influences, relationships that are pushing wholeheartedly against what it means to have your citizenship in heaven. There will be voices and influences and relationships that tell you, hey, we don't do that here. That's weird. That's normal. That's peculiar. That's strange. And we'll even venture into that's that's hateful, that's mean, that's bigoted, that's whatever, all these different things, to stand firm in the truth of having your citizenship in heaven. Like we talked about last week, we will look different. We will think different. We will talk different. 
We will behave different. If your citizenship is, heaven, is in heaven, and many of you, uh, you know, when I moved from Arkansas to Texas uh, to go to Bible college, I spent 12 years growing up in Arkansas, and then I go to Texas for seven years before I came here. And when I went to Bible school in, in Texas, every single person I met within five minutes of meeting me is like, where are you from? And I'm like, Arkansas. And they're like, yeah, we can tell. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I sound just like you. We both have Southern accents. And they're like, no, you don't sound like us. And, and so I'm like, are you kidding me? And so now that I've been away from that context for a while, when I talk to my brother on the phone in Arkansas, I'm like, oh, yeah, I get what they were talking about now. <laughs> I hear it. And even families in Texas, there's a difference between the Texas accent and the Arkansas accent. When you are from somewhere else, there are perceivable differences from the way that you sound, the way that you talk, the things that you do. I could tell you about the ways and things that my family does in the South that you don't do here. And you're like, yeah, that's different. They don't do things like that here. And let me just say, if you invite me to your house and you say, we're going to have tamales and I, slow up, I show up and there's sloppy joes, I might fight you. Okay? Tamales and sloppy joes are not the same thing and you need to repent. I'm just going to preach the truth. Don't, don't get mad. So there are differences that are perceivable. And I got tired of people noticing that about me and saying that. And so when I got tired of it, when I was in Texas, I said, okay, I'm going to try as hard as I can. I'm going to intentionally try to lose this Southern accent. And I think I've done a pretty good job, but I'm willing to bet that most of you Wisconsinites sometimes hear words come out of my mouth that you're like, oh yeah, there it is. That as hard as I might try, where I came from comes out. And if you have citizenship in heaven, we're actually not trying to lose that accent. We're trying to just embrace, man, I am not from here. And I'm not going to look like this. I'm not going to sound like that. I'm going to say bag and dragon and wagon instead of bag, dragon, and wagon. And it's just who I am because of where I'm from. Sorry, I might rib you and joke about that a little too much. But there is a difference and we're going to look different. We're going to sound different. And, and in a culture that wants to make us like them in the way that we think, in the way that we speak, in the way that we behave, if we are going to be faithful citizens of heaven, it will require us digging in our heels and going, nope, this is not my home. This is not where I'm from. I have heavenly citizenship. And so I understand this culture that I'm in, but I'm going to live from my heavenly citizenship. I'm gonna look different, sound different, I'm gonna be weird. There's gonna be things that it means to be a Christian that others are gonna look at me and go, weirdo, or other adjectives, and I'm just gonna go, that's okay. Because I've got my eyes, my mind, my heart set on the things in eternity in Christ. This is a conscious decision to acknowledge and remind ourselves that we are not from here. This isn't our home. We are pilgrims passing through. My goal, my prize that Paul talked about in Philippians chapter 3, our hope is not in Philippi. My hope is not in Macedonia. My hope is not in Rome, in this Roman colony. My hope is not in Sheboygan. My hope is not in Wisconsin. My hope is not in America or this world, 
My hope is in heaven. My hope is in Christ. My goal, my prize, my joy, my longing, my yearning, my, pursu- my pursuing is not in anything in this world that can be taken from me where moth and rust can destroy. My hope is set in heaven where the things of this earth cannot touch my hope, where my joy is anchored in something that the world cannot touch. Where the, and, and that joy, that hope, affects the way I live, the way that I talk, the way that I behave, the way that I relate, the way that I love, the way that I walk in humility. All these things come out of me looking back to my home, recognizing I'm here for a little bit as an ambassador from my home. I will go back home, and therefore I'm going to maintain the values, the views, the beliefs, the truth from that home while I'm here, and I want to be so heavenly-minded that I actually am earthly good. I want to have my mind so set on heavenly things, heavenly truths, heavenly realities, that while I'm here in this temporary world as a pilgrim, not only am I going standing firm and saying, actually, you're not going to budge me off of my heavenly values and, and truths and culture. Actually, I want to show you that you can become free in this too. I'm going to stand firm in this and in this also hopefully show the, the love of God and share the truth of God, inviting you into the eternal home and citizenship of heaven as well. Amen? Continuing on in Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, as Paul st- says, stand firm in the Lord. Verse 2, we're going to get into a few ways that he talks about standing firm. He says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Here we go again. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. See, with the appeal to stand firm as citizens of heaven comes one more plea for unity. It's like we have spent two chapters on that conversation already. Like, Paul, we, we spent a lot of time earlier where you're talking about be of one mind, be of one heart, be of one spirit. You know, consider the others better than yourselves or prefer others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but the interests of others. We already had that talk. And there's this whole other gap of conversation. And Paul now says, as citizens of heaven, stand firm. I compel Euodia and Syntyche to agree So if we're going to stand firm, one thing we've got to address, why didn't Paul talk about this all the way back when he was talking about unity? All the way back there, when he was addressing all these types of things of humbling ourselves and considering the needs of others above ourselves. And I think it's because Paul wants us to see that if we're going to, as citizens of heaven, stand firm, we have to do it together. If we're going to, as citizens of heaven, stand firm, if we're going to stand firm against the currents of the culture, we have to do it together. I find it interesting that with so much of that conversation earlier in the letter being about humility and unity, preferring one another, Paul didn't say this back then. He could have back then said, Euodia, Syntyche, I'm looking at you. 
But he waited until this point. Now, remember, this letter would have been read to the entire church of Philippi. Could you imagine being Euodia or Syntyche? So they're going, oh, snap. <laughs> like he's putting us on blast, essentially, in love. All that stuff he said earlier, painting that picture, he finally comes back and he says, hey, Euodia, Syntyche, I want you guys to agree and he saves their situation for a point in which he's encouraging everyone to stand firm in their heavenly citizenship. Because if we are going to stand firm, we're going to have to do it together. We don't know exactly what was causing this rift between them. Could have been tamales and sloppy joes. We don't know. But apparently, it was significant enough for them to be specifically called out in a letter that would have been read to the entire church. Not only does he remind them to be unified, he says, let's be agreeable. Whatever you guys, he says, Euodia, Syntyche, what you guys are wrestling and fighting about, contending and being divided on, agree. Let's work that out. He's not only does he remind them to be unified and work out the differences, but again, he brings it back to the gospel mission that they're on and that gospel mission being greater than their differences. Notice again, I entreat you, uh, I entreat you, Odia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me and the gospel together. He's appealing them to be in unity, to, to work out their differences, to come into agreement. And then he goes, You've labored in the gospel together, side by side. He's trying to use this as a reminder as to why they need to agree. This gospel mission we are on in this earth as citizens of heaven is greater with the mission from heaven, from Jesus Christ, to be on a gospel mission sharing the truth of Jesus Christ with others. This is greater than this small thing or whatever it might be that you're disagreeing about. Whatever this issue is that's got Euodia and Syntyche separated, listen, we're laboring together for the gospel, side by side. And so whatever that is, work it out, because we've got gospel work to do. We've been laboring for the gospel. We're going to keep laboring for the gospel as long as we're here. So work that stuff out. And he appeals someone to mediate if it's necessary. This is hearkening back again to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 8, or Matthew chapter 18. If you have an offense, go to that person. If they don't hear you, bring in one more person. If they don't hear you, bring it to the leaders of the church. And then if they don't hear you, then wash your hands and pray for them, essentially. And so right here, he says, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together. And now notice this. With Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Not only does he say, be agreeable and walk in unity because we have a gospel mission that's greater than whatever this little issue is that you're fighting over, but also remember, our names are in the book of life. What is he saying? We're going to be together forever. We're going to be together for eternity as the family of God. So work this stuff out now. Because together forever, we're going to be in unison, giving glory and praise and honor and worship to God, reveling and rejoicing in the glory of God. So since 
Our names are in the book of life since we will be forever together, church family, God's family in heaven. Put this stuff, let's get this worked out. He said, oh, by the way, we're all going to be together for eternity. So let's figure this stuff out, get it behind us, and move forward with Christ's gospel mission. Listen, if there is a brother or sister in Christ that you can't link arms with, the gospel is calling you to reconcile. See, all of us at some point and in some degree are going to get offended or hurt by someone else in the church. And a lot of people people go to new churches or try out new churches because they got hurt or offended at another church. And I'm not downplaying those hurts and offenses. Wounds happen because we're sinners. This church is full of people who are not yet perfected in Christ. And so as we grow closer together and as we grow in unity and Christ-centered community, our, our incompletion, our failures, our weaknesses will wound each other. We will fail each other. We will hurt each other to varying uh, degrees at varying times in our pursuit of Christ. And so this whole idea of reconciliation, working out differences for the gospel mission, and because we will be eternal family, is something that you either have to recognize, I'm going to have to develop this godly skill, or I'm just going to keep on hopping from the next to the next to the next. Or I'm going to be in a church and be a minister of division and discord. If you cannot develop this skill of working through differences and in love and in humility, reconciling with other believers, you will either in an immature way keep hopping and hopping and hopping and hopping, or you'll stay put, let the offense continue to harbor and grow and fester, and you will poison the hearts and minds of other people's, poison their well against other people and be a minister of discord and a minister of disunity within a church body, which is dangerous and a bad thing to do. This is a skill we need to have. The ability to, in humility and love, go to a brother or sister in Christ and say, hey, there's something between us and the gospel mission is too great for us to have something between us and we're gonna be together forever in eternity anyways. And so what this thing, we need to work this out. We need to work this out. So if there's someone in this church family that you have offense with, don't just go, you know what, I'm just going to distance myself from them. I'm going to fellowship with these folks over here, and I'm not going to do anything with them. That's not good. You need to realize the gospel mission is greater than that offense. You need to realize that we're going to live as citizens of heaven in eternity with Christ forever anyways. So let's humble ourselves and love and in grace go into those relationships or into those conversations with humility, with love, with gentleness and tenderness and grace. Again, Jesus said, and if your brother hears you, you've gained your brother. The heart of conflict, res or of conflict resolution is reconciliation. Amen? If there's a brother or sister in Christ that you can't link arms with, the gospel is calling you to reconcile. Let's continue on in verse 4. After this, Paul <laughs> One more time, here we go, verse one, or I'm sorry, verse four. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Remember Philippians chapter three, verse one, where he goes, finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And for me to say these things to you again, it's no trouble for me, it's not tedious for me, and it's safe for you. 
He's talked about joy again and again. He's told them to rejoice again and again. And one more time, after he's talking about having our citizenship in heaven and letting that citizenship motivate us to walk in unity and being mindful and thinking about the fact that our names are written in heaven, he goes, man, rejoice in the Lord. Again, I will say, rejoice in the Lord. This comes right out of him saying, our names are written in the book of life. This makes me think about Luke chapter 10. There's one time where Jesus has this massive crowd of people following him. And it tells us that in Luke chapter 10, there were 72 people that Jesus commissions. And he says, guys, I've given you authority. Go out into these towns, preach the gospel, call people into repentance, uh, heal people, cast out demons, and then come back. And so in Luke chapter 10, they, they do this. These people go out, and then they're ministering, and they come back to Jesus. And to Jesus, they're going, Jesus, this is incredible. Even the demons were subject to us in your name. Because they've seen Jesus do this stuff. They've seen Jesus heal people. They've seen Jesus cast out demons. And they're just having their minds blown that this man, Jesus, has authority over demons and over sickness. But then Jesus sends 72 of these people out and gives them authority. And they go and do it. And they come back like, Jesus, this is amazing. We, we were casting out demons and we were healing people too. Like, even the demons are subject to us and your name. And Jesus says, yeah, man, you know authority? All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, and I give you authority to trample over serpents and scorpions, scorpions and nothing will harm you. And as they're hearing that, they're probably going, this is amazing. Not only what we have seen, but we can like trample on serpents and scorpions, and nothing's even going to hurt us. Like, they're, they're like getting amped up and excited and rejoicing. And then Jesus says this, but listen, don't rejoice. He says, rejoice, same word here, don't rejoice that the demons are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Don't rejoice that the demons are listening to you. Rejoice. Don't get excited and don't go, the demons are listening to me because I've got Jesus. He said, no, 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 no. If there's going to be overflowing, elated joy in you, it ought to be in the fact that your name is in heaven. Paul just comes out of saying, remember, our names are written in heaven. And then he says, rejoice in the Lord. Always. And again, I say, rejoice. Listen, deep and lasting joy is found in belonging to Christ. Jesus sees the opportunity of his disciples to take God things, authority over demons, authority to do incredible works and wonders in the name of Christ. He sees their capacity to start placing their rejoicing, their joy in those godly good things. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. If you're going to rejoice, Rejoice that you belong to Christ and that you're going to be in heaven or in eternity with me forever. If there's going to be something that overflows out of you into rejoicing, it ought to be the eternal truth that you will forever be with me. If there is to be deep and lasting joy, it is to be that we belong 
to Christ. This is what Paul is declaring in chapter 3 when he goes, all those things that I once thought were so important, I count them as rubbish, that I might know Christ. I've counted all those things as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. And so there are plenty of things in this life, in this world, and even good and godly things that we can start placing our hope in and start placing our joy in. And Jesus and Paul are both, so, both saying, listen, rejoice in the Lord, in Jesus Christ. Rejoice in him always. Again, I say rejoice Amen. Going on in verse 5, he says, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Let your reasonableness be known, be known to everyone. I think Paul is saying that our ability to be reasonable, not irrational or unreasonable, our ability to be reasonable is an actual testimony to others. This is a testimony to others. The Christian ought to be able to be reasonable by the grace of God. This is a testimony to others. That's why he said, let your reasonableness be known to all men. Let people see your reasonableness. And then he goes on to say, the Lord is at hand. I love what we're about to get into now. Here's a famous passage. As we go on in verse six, he says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I want to say something. The more you set your heart and mind on eternity, the less room there is in your heart and mind for anxiety. I'm going to say that one more time. The more you set your heart and mind on eternity, the less room there is in your heart and in your mind for anxiety. Paul said this that do not be anxious about everything, but in everything, or be, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God will surpass all understanding, or the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. What is one of the best ways to set in our hearts and minds on eternity? Prayer. After this commission, to say we're not going to be like those of this world who set their minds on things of this world. Our citizenship is in heaven. Let's be agreeable. Let our reasonableness be made known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious for anything. And, and I think sometimes we miss the fact that for whatever reason, that scholars that I don't know, in verse 5, let your reasonable, reasonableness be made known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. They put that in verse 5. But there's a period there. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone, period. The Lord is at hand, 
semicolon, and of course this is English syntax, but letting the Lord as at hand. That again is an eternal perspective. Thinking about the Lord's kingdom coming and us being eternally with Christ. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So what's one of the best ways? Again, the more you set your heart and mind on eternity, the less room there is in your heart and mind for anxiety. One of the best ways we can do this is through prayer. When we pray, we acknowledge, we recognize for a moment that we're talking to the eternal God about our temporary circumstances. When we pray, when we have something on our heart and mind that's giving us anxiety, it's because we're focusing on whatever that temporal, temporary, earthly circumstance is. And listen, it's not wrong to care or, or have concern or have uh, thoughts about what we're going through or outcomes that we're hoping for. It's not wrong, obviously, with what Paul's saying here to pray about these things. Absolutely. But when we do pray, we are taking our hearts and our minds and we're casting them to the eternal God who is above all of our circumstances, who is greater than whatever we could even be praying to him about. I remember about a month and a half ago, two months, something like that, there was a day that I was dealing with some strong anxiety. I'm generally not a person who battles anxiety very much. It's not something that I really struggle with. Uh, but there was a day that something was going on a month and a half, two months ago, um, where there was a day that my heart and my mind were being ruled by anxiety. I was very anxious. I could not think about anything but this one issue. Um, and it, it was hindering my ability to be present in my work, be present with my family, and it was just burdening me and bothering me. So I went, and I spent some time in prayer, and then I started spending some time in worship, and I had a, a playlist um, on shuffle and repeat, and a song came up that I grew up hearing a lot, and song from my childhood, cued all sorts of nostalgia and great memories, but the truth of the song is really what hit me. Have you ever heard the song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That song came on and it was peace, boom. Not because of the song, not because of the melody, not because of the instrumentation, but because of the truth that came into my heart and mind. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And that thing that was causing anxiety in my heart and in my mind that was just ruling my, my vision for the day, when I went, no, I'm going to turn my eyes on Jesus. Looking full, meaning putting all of my vision, casting my heart and mind on Jesus, looking unto him, thinking about eternal realities. When I look at him, the things of earth, grow strangely dim 
they get dimmer and dimmer and dimmer. The more that we look at Jesus, the dimmer those things become. So when you're wrestling with anxiety, this is why Paul says, don't be anxious about anything. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, in everything, with prayer and supplication, thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace that surpasses all understanding. What does that mean? Peace that passes understanding. That means in circumstances where you should not have peace, where people would look at you and go, how does that person have peace right now? This is going on and this is going on. They're in the middle of this and that. Peace that passes understanding. I mean, it, it doesn't make sense to have peace. You'll have it. Why? Because the peace of Christ is ruling in your heart and mind. And when we take our minds, just like Paul, who's like, yeah, I'm in prison, but all the prison guards are hearing about Jesus, so that's cool. Who's doing this? He's modeling it earlier in the chapters. In all these circumstances and situations where he shouldn't have peace, he's got it. Why? Because I'm willing to bet that he's doing a lot of prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, casting his mind, his vision, his heart onto Christ, looking full in his wonderful face. And that's causing the things of the earth to grow dim. And I love how he says, be anxious for nothing. Don't be anxious for anything, but in everything. There's a, a, a book that I read one time that had a wonderful quote. Jared C. Wilson, he said this, and you've probably heard me say this recently. Prayer is expressed helplessness. When we are not engaged in prayer, it is because we feel like we got this. The extent to which you are not engaged in prayer is the extent to which you are relying on your own strength. I'm going to read that one more time. This quote from Jared Wilson, prayer is expressed helplessness. It's expressing I'm helpless in this. Prayer is expressed helplessness. When we're not engaged in prayer, it's because we feel like we got this. When we're not praying, it's because we confident, we're confident in our own ability. We think we've got this. That's why we don't pray. The extent to which you are not engaged in prayer is the extent to which you are relying on your own strength. That when we're not praying, and listen, I, I'll tell you guys the truth. I've told multiple people this over the last week. This has been my first week uh, fully in office as the lead pastor of our church family. And I just want to say thanks because I can tell people are praying for me. I can feel it. This last week, Monday through Thursday in the office, I have never that I can remember been more aware of the grace of God on me, helping me do what I'm called to do. Like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, every single day in meetings and conversations and sermon prep and strategy and ideation, things were just coming to me where I'm just, I have to step back and go, this is not normal. This is not me. God is doing this for me. And I also think it's not coincidental that at the start of this week in staff meeting, I encouraged our staff, listen, I want us to start every single day in prayer. Before we get into our tasks, before we start working on stuff, before we start going, you know what? I'm a pretty good preacher. God's gifted me with that. I can do that. Before I start putting those together, stopping, slowing down, and going, I don't got this. If I'm going to preach the truth of God, I need God to help me see it, understand it, and communicate it. 
We don't got this to have strategy and implement things that are going to help us be successful in the mission of God. We've got to acknowledge we don't got this. And a lot of times we think we do. That's why prayer so often for us becomes 911. Prayer for us becomes, uh-oh, I don't got this anymore. And now I need to pray. Since this is out of my control now, that's why 2020 served as a great eye-opener for people on how much they were trusting in things that weren't God. Trusting in bank accounts, trusting in economy, trusting in government, trusting in uh, society, and trusting in their job, trusting in their ability to be around other people. All those idols were exposed last year. And people began praying. Because all those things that they were clinging to for security and trust and confidence, those security blankets were ripped out of their hands. And thank God that people were called back into prayer and going, I don't got this. Wise, mature believers would recognize daily and in everything, we don't got this. And if we think we got this, then we're leaning on our own strength, on our own ability to accomplish what God has set before us. That's why he says, in everything. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything with prayer, supplication. And that word supplication, we know what prayer means. We know what thanksgiving means. But a lot of times we just skip over that word supplication. Like, what does that mean? Supplication implies desperate begging. It means you're desperate. It's like, Getting down and humbling yourself and begging, going, I acknowledge God, I need you in this. I don't got this. And it requires us confronting ourselves with the truth and how often we think we do got this. That supplication, petitioning the Lord earnestly, diligently. There are people who have been meeting every Wednesday night since our pastoral search started praying every single Wednesday night. And I believe there are things that have happened and are happening in our church from those people's diligent and faithful prayer together. There are people in our church family who are praying constantly daily about different things, praying about their lives, praying about different circumstances, but are also praying for our church. And listen, as we move forward as a church family, if we're going to do more than just have church, if we're going to live missionally, if we're going to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ, if we're going to make an impact in Sheboygan County and abroad, if people are going to spend eternity with Christ, having their names written in heaven like we just talked about, if those things are going to happen through us, it will only be because we realize we don't got this and we need God. It will only be, it will only be because we've become a people of prayer. Strategy's good. All those things, ideation, planning, all that stuff is good and is needed. But if we're going to be successful about the Lord's work, it will only be because we're depending on the Lord and seeking the Lord and walking in the Lord with the Lord to accomplish the Lord's purposes. Amen? When we do this, when we turn our eyes upon Jesus, it guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. Paul goes on into this other wonderful verse, continuing on with the theme of casting our hearts and minds 
into our heavenly citizenship by saying, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And whatever you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. In Philippians 4 and verse 8, you know, we have an incredible gift as human beings designed and wired by God that we actually get to decide what happens up here. We get to choose what's going on in our brain. The problem is we don't realize that or we're not thinking about it. We don't, we're not intentional with it. And we let just whatever's happening up here just happen. We just let whatever's going on in our brain, let it be up there. And we're not masters of our thoughts. This is where one time Paul told the church in Corinth, he said, um, he, he talked about casting down arguments that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought, every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, for we serve the Lord Christ. Paul told the church in Corinth, listen, every thought that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, against the truth, we cast those thoughts down and we bring them into subjection and the authority of Christ. And right here, Paul is telling the church in Philippi, he says, whatsoever things are true, just, noble, lovely, praiseworthy, of good report, if anything's excellent, any of these things, let's think on these things. He's telling us, let's cast our minds, let's focus our minds on those things. One thing I heard so much growing up that my dad said that I'm thankful it sunk into me, sunk into me was think about what you're thinking about. Think about what you're thinking about. If there's things happening in your brain that are ungodly, that are, that are not pleasing to the Lord, you have the ability, not only the ability, but the right and the authority as a believer to confront those things. This is where Paul again told the church in, in, in Rome, in Romans chapter 12, he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, taking scripture and letting it change the way we think. And then going, if there's things in my mind that don't line up with what God says about himself, about me, and if there's things in my mind that are not true, that are not just, that are not noble, that are not pure, that are not lovely, that are not praiseworthy and of a good report, things that are not excellent, I need to cast those thoughts out of my mind and cast my mind onto those things where, again, I'm meditating on the things that are true from my heavenly citizenship, casting my mind to eternal truths. There was a, 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 little, a week ago, I suppose, my wife Katie and I did a little, ba little bit of house sitting for her parents. They've got a dog and, uh, and a house out in the country, and it was either let that dog come stay in our house or we go stay in their house with our dog. And I was like, yeah, let's go stay there because I don't want the dog being uncomfortable, peeing on my floor, blah, blah, blah. And so we stayed at their house for a week. They had a great time on vacation. Then we get back to our house, being gone for a week. I go out in my backyard and I look in the flower bed that's lining our backyard and there's weeds everywhere. 
I hadn't been tending to that for a week. Usually every week I try and go back there when I have to mow every week. Before I mow, I'll pull some weeds, throw them out in the lawn, and then I'll mow the lawn. And because I stopped for a week, there was more weeds in that bed than there has been in a year. Because I stopped one week of intentionally confronting what was growing in that garden. Weeds are a wonderful example of our brain. You don't pull the weeds and then it's like, all right, we did that check mark. Now we can wait till next year until our weed pulling day and we don't have to worry about it again. They keep on coming back. They keep coming back. Dear Lord, help us if there was a way to make them stop coming back. But I think there's also some faithful goodness for us in that we have to choose to go, I got to pull this stuff out again and again and again. I don't want this stuff in my flower bed. And so I have to keep over and over and over again. And listen, as citizens of heaven, you will have to again and again and again, over and over, day by day, moment by moment, confront the weeds of ungodliness that are trying to grow in your mind by casting them out and saying, no, I'm going to think on whatsoever things are true. I'm going to think upon whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are noble, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of a good report. I'm going to turn my eyes upon Jesus. See, living in this world, not of this world, but as citizens of heaven, it is our responsibility to do all we can to set our minds not on the things of this world, but on the things of heaven on the things of God, on his goodness, his glory, his faithfulness, his love, his ways, how we belong to Christ and not to ourselves. As we turn our eyes upon Jesus, looking fully at him, the things of this earth grow dim. See, the brighter Jesus becomes in our eyes, the dimmer the world becomes. The louder that Jesus becomes in our ears, the quieter the world becomes. We turn our eyes on Jesus.